The sermon text for today is Romans chapter 12. We will read the whole chapter, uh, verses 1 through 21. I've decided to take a short break from the book of Revelation. Uh, Last week I preached on Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 mainly. Uh, And today we will finish out the chapter. And then next week, as I've announced earlier, um, we will have a a guest teacher and, and preacher. And then we will resume in our study of the book of Revelation. But I wanted to return to Romans chapter 12 and to look at the remaining portion here uh, this morning. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's Word. We will read only from the New Testament this morning, Romans 12, verses 1 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So far, the reading of God's holy, inspired an errant and authoritative word, we do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. Last Sunday, I did preach on Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and there we found Paul the Apostle pleading with us uh, by the mercy of God, and based upon all that he has said to us in the previous chapters of uh, this letter concerning the glorious salvation that has come to us in Christ Jesus, to offer ourselves up to God, body and soul, as sacrifices that are living, holy, and acceptable. Do you remember that? Did you remember the Apostle's plea? 
I'm pleading with you, he says, therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so evidently the apostle was not interested in promoting any kind of easy believism wherein a person comes to Christ to receive benefits from him, only to turn away from Christ, to go on living for himself and according to the sinful ways of the world. You do know what I am referring to here when I refer to easy believism, that is the person who wants to have Christ and all the benefits that are found in him, but not Christ as Lord, you see. They want to remain Lord of their own lives, and they will not therefore surrender to Christ. Paul wanted nothing to do with that. I think that would have been a most repugnant thought to to Paul. Uh, Paul, I am sure, would say that is not true faith. The the kind of faith that he was urging people to have was one uh, where a person surrendered completely to Christ, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of sins, and then going on serving him as Lord. Instead, Paul insists that to come to Christ, to believe upon Him truly, and to benefit from His finished work, does also involve offering yourself up to God through faith in Christ as a living sacrifice. Uh, To have Christ as Savior, one must have Him also as Lord, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, Paul says in Romans uh, 10, 9. So, so you see that there really is a ditch on both sides of the road here. Uh, there are some who do try to earn their salvation by keeping the law. That is the ditch on the one side of the road. They think that they can be good enough to go to heaven. Of course, Paul uh, urges uh, us to see that that is not true, but that we are condemned by the law. But there is a ditch on the other side of the road, and they fall into it, who think that they can have Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. They are lawless Christians. They claim to be Christians, but they live in a lawless way. That way is not the true way of salvation. We must beware of it. Instead, we must say, Christ, you are my Savior. I trust in you alone for the forgiveness of my sins, and now I go on with you as Lord, desiring to to offer my whole self up to you as a living sacrifice. And so in verses 1 and 2, we we do find the apostle making this beautiful appeal to the Christian, offer yourselves up to God as a living sacrifice, he says. Do not conform to the sinful patterns of this world, but be transformed to the core of your being by the renewal of your mind, so that over time and by testing, you will will find yourself desiring that which God desires and approving of that which God approves and being willing to do that which God wills. This passage is very beautiful, I think, and it's very challenging. It's famous for a reason, because it does challenge the Christian in such a beautiful way. And it does apply most directly to individual Christians, doesn't it? We are individually to offer ourselves up to God. We are individually to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The Christian, having considered all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, is to develop and maintain a proper attitude towards God as we live in this world. Our response to God's amazing grace should be to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and mind and strength, Mark twelve thirty. But do you see how quickly the apostle turns to address the Christian's 
attitude towards others. And not just the Christian as an individual, but the Christian's attitude towards others. And I want you also to consider the amount of space that he devotes to this subject. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he does plead with us to offer ourselves up to God as sacrifices, living, holy, and acceptable. And it's only right that he begins there, for that is indeed the first and greatest commandment, to love God with all that we are. If we do not get this right, then we will not have anything right at all. But look at how quickly he turns to plead with us to love our neighbor as ourself. And look at how much space he devotes to this subject. Uh, One only has to glance at the, the, the pericope headings, the headings over each section that are listed there probably in your English uh, translations of, of the, the, the Greek New Testament. You just have to glance at the, the, the main headings from, from 12.3 on to the end of the book to see that the apostle is laboring to exhort the Christian to develop and maintain a proper attitude towards others as we live in this fallen world. And his first concern seems to be that we would love one another in Christ's church. And my question is this, do we give enough attention to this matter, uh, the matter of loving one another in Christ's church or the matter of loving our neighbor as ourself. Um, I want you to, to, to ask that question. Do we give enough attention to this subject? Do we give the attention to it that Paul does? He has established biblical doctrine in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And then he goes now here in chapter 12 to begin to apply that doctrine very specifically uh, to the Christian. And in the first two verses, he talks about our walk in this world as it pertains to God. Offer yourselves up to God as a living sacrifice. He, he urges us to do that. But then it's as if the whole rest of the book of Romans is spent urging the Christian to consider not the a vertical relationship, but now that that vertical relationship has been established, he then urges us to have proper relationships horizontally with, with one another. Look at how much space he devotes to that subject. Paul is not interested in us just having right doctrine. He wants us to have right doctrine that will lead to a right relationship with God, and then very quickly he also wants our right doctrine to, to influence us so that we have a right relationship with one another, especially in Christ's church. I think it would be hard to find a true Christian who would say something like this, I need not make much effort when it comes to my relationship with God. All Christians, all who profess faith in Christ, would at least say, I must invest into my relationship with God. I must make effort there. But there are many in our day who seem to have little concern at all for cultivating and maintaining loving relationships within Christ's church. You've noticed this, I think. Some neglect the local church altogether. Um, I was driving my teenage daughter home from school the other day. This was a few weeks ago now. And she was really agitated about a conversation she was, with, was having with, with some of our friends. My daughters are feisty little things. They, they really are, and they're not so little anymore. They're, they're quite grown Uh, But she was agitated about a conversation she was having with some of her friends. They were claiming to be Christians, right? They were professing faith in Christ. And yet they were very insistent that going to church is not important or necessary. What matters is that you have a personal relationship with God 
and that you pray to him at home. That, that's the thing that they were saying. It, it was a very happy moment for me uh, to see my daughter not just give right answers, but to be really bothered at the thought of, of this, right? Um, you, you've heard this sort of talk before. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Haven't you heard that kind of talk before? It's a very common sentiment today. And, and we, would, we would reply to that sort of statement in agreement with um, our brother Earl Blackburn. No, Jesus loves the church and so should you. Um, Christ's love was for the church. Christ's love was for his bride. He shed his blood for her. He laid his life down for her with all of her imperfections. We surely are imperfect, aren't we? And there is trouble that arises within the church, no doubt. But Christ died for, for the church. How then you, can you say that you love Jesus and yet you despise the thing that he died for? He redeemed a people for himself and not just individuals. Everywhere the New Testament speaks of us corporately as a redeemed people, uh, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Um, praise be to God. So I'm not so concerned to address that attitude this morning, actually, this attitude that I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I doubt any of you have it. If, if you do, I'm surprised, though very glad that you're here. Um, I'm more concerned to address the propensity that even we might have to neglect the cultivation of deep and loving relationships within the body of Christ. Do you know what I'm speaking to here? Even, even we who have, I hope, a proper view and appreciation of the local church, even we might grow tired and negligent in this area. And I think it's important that Christians be stirred up, that they be exhorted to love one another, you know, love one another sincerely and from the heart. We are to enjoy fellowship with one another within Christ's church. And, and it's important that we not trivialize that word. Fellowship is, is more than engaging in casual conversation after the church service. It's more than that. Uh, to have fellowship with one another is to have Christ in common. And that is a very deep and significant bond, isn't it? Uh, to have fellowship is to agree that God's word is true. To have fellowship is to worship God together. Uh, being united together in Christ Jesus. We are to care deeply for one another. Spiritually, we are to build one another up. Physically, we are to address one another's needs. And so we cannot approach our fellowship with one another casually, but we must do what the Apostle has in another place urged us to do. We must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. The word eager here means to do something with intense effort and motivation. And so do see this, that God cares deeply about our attitude towards one another within Christ's church. Christ himself did say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty four through 35 in verses 3 through 8, 8 of Romans 12, the apostle urges us to love one another. And he does at first warn against pride. That is the first thing he does. He wants for us to love one another sincerely and from the heart. But he issues a warning. He warns against pride. Pride will absolutely kill love within the church. 
Uh, prideful people cannot love others because they are too concern, consumed with, with loving uh, themselves. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, who is he writing to, by the way? To an individual Christian? No, he's writing to the church, a local church in the city of Rome. And he is saying, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, uh, alluding to the fellowship there, the fellowship that these Christians were a part of, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I've heard it said that pride is a form of insanity. Uh, To be puffed up with pride is to lose touch with reality. Uh, The prideful person thinks too highly of himself. He lives being unaware of his frailty. He lives unaware of his tremendous need. He thinks that what he has, he has gotten by his own strength. And he has forgotten that everything good that he does possess was given to him as a gift from God. Uh, The treasures that he has are his because God has given them to him. The same is true of his abilities. The position that he might have is his because God has appointed him to it. The prideful person walks around oblivious to reality. He thinks of himself, not with sober judgment, but foolishly. He he ends up living his whole life according to a lie. Uh, Paul, in another place, warned against Christians being puffed up in favor of one against another. And to combat the sinful pride, he asked them this question, What do you have that you did not receive? So here you are, puffed up with pride, thinking that you're better than others. Let me just ask you this question, Paul says. What do you have that was not given to you, that was not a gift to you? And then he asks this follow-up question, If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you boast then as if what you have, your, your money or your abilities or your position, why do you boast as if it was something that you obtained on your own? Instead, no, you must see that it was a gift from God and you should be humble. Humble towards God and humble towards one another. If we are to love one another as Christ has commanded, we must keep pride in check. Never should we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I think the earlier chapters of Romans should certainly help us with this. For it's there in those chapters that we are told of our total depravity, our helpless condition apart from Christ, and our salvation being owed totally to the sovereign grace of God. How you can come away from the first 11 chapters of Romans puffed up with pride, I do not know. Those chapters should absolutely destroy us when it comes to Uh, having pride in ourselves. They should cause us to look to Christ alone uh, in a humble state indeed and to look humbly towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. In another place, the apostle reminds us that God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from, above, from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul there in 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31 is saying, listen, don't be puffed up with pride because you are in Christ. In fact, here's a little piece of information for you. God seems to have chosen the, the very lowly things. 
the very lowly things in this world. Uh, so that the end result is this, uh, that if you are to boast at all, it, it, it must be boasting in the Lord. Look at all that Christ has done for me. And so where is there room for boasting then in the Christian life? The answer is there's no room at all. Uh, the more we know about God's word, the more humble we should grow. Sometimes the opposite happens though. Where we learn and, and we grow in knowledge and all of a sudden we, we, we see pride uh, arising within us because of our knowledge. It, it seems to me that that person has really not understood anything then. They might have gained more, uh, more, more information but they have not understood the doctrines that they have learned. In fact, the more we know about God's word, the more humble we should grow, for it is there in the scriptures that our smallness and God's greatness is most clearly revealed to us. And the more gifts we have, the more humble we should be to think that God would be pleased to use frail and sinful creatures such as ourselves in His kingdom. When we have done all that we were commanded, what can we say except we are unworthy servants? We have only done what was our duty, Luke 17.10. And so, brothers and sisters, never should we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment and according to what God's Word uh, does say about us. Do you see how pride will kill love within the Christian fellowship? But we must keep pride at check. And the way to find pride is to go to God's Word and to believe what it says there and to think with sober judgment concerning ourselves. Secondly, Paul urges us to appreciate the diversity that exists within the church and to celebrate it, rejoicing in the unity we have in Christ Jesus. This will also help to foster love within the church. When we, when we notice that there is a tremendous amount of diversity within Christ's church, and, and we need to learn to, to appreciate that and, and to celebrate it and to rejoice in it. Verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so Paul here uses the human body to illustrate the principle that in the church there is both great diversity and substantial unity. The human body is made up of many parts, and as it pertains to their function, those parts do differ greatly from one another. But those parts do make up one body, don't they? Paul develops this idea more fully in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and following. But in both places, his desire is that we would recognize the diversity within the church, that we would celebrate it, and that we would honor one another, giving thanks to God for his wisdom and grace. There is a tendency within the church, I think, for some, uh, to with pride in their heart say, why isn't everyone like me? You know? Everyone ought to be just like I am. Uh, why doesn't everyone have my temperament? In fact, my temperament is the right temperament, the correct temperament. Why doesn't everyone have my temperament? Why doesn't everyone have the passions that I have? I mean, I am so passionate about this, and everyone else should be passionate about this thing too. And why doesn't everyone do what I do? Where, where, where are all the other workers? You know, Why aren't they here with me laboring in this way or serving, serving in, in this uh, way? Uh, and, and brothers and sisters, we should give thanks to God, truth be told, that not everyone is like us within Christ's church, but that God has blessed the church with tremendous diversity. Uh, some make the opposite error when they look down upon the gifts that God has given to them and they envy the gifts of others, thinking, 
I have nothing to offer. I wish that I were as they are. Do you understand how this is the opposite air? Some with pride in their hearts saying, why isn't everyone as I am? But others, they look at the gifts that they have and they say, my gifts are nothing. They are so small. What can I possibly contribute to this body? And I wish that I were as they are. And so both uh, of these errors uh, hinder our ability uh, to love one another within Christ's church. The one puffed up with pride looks down upon everyone else. The other one who is uh, thinking too lowly of himself or the gift that God has given is there found in a state of inactivity because surely God cannot use me. I have nothing to contribute. No, both things are erroneous. Instead, we need to see that God in his wisdom has ordered his body in this way that within the church there is going to exist a tremendous amount of diversity, but it is according to the wisdom of God. We must all do our part. And so we must guard against these things, both the attitude of pride and the attitude of envy as it pertains to our giftedness within Christ's church. Both of these things are devastating to the body of Christ. But just as in a healthy human body, all the members according to their design, do happily do their part for the good of the whole, so too it must be in the local church. For we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Thirdly, Paul urges us to use our gifts, whatever they may be, for the good of all. Look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so Paul is here urging the Christian to use their gifts, whatever they may be, for the good of all. Now, it is our view that the gift of prophecy does not exist within the church today as it did in the time of the apostles. I don't have the time to develop that point, but I'm sure of it, that just as there are no more apostles in the church today, neither are there prophets. Uh, They passed away with the age of the apostles. If you need me to demonstrate that to you, I'd be happy to at another time. I'll provide some teaching on that at another time. Uh, So the gift of prophecy does not exist within the church today, as it did in the time of the apostles, in the days when Paul wrote to the Romans. But that said, Paul does seem to divide the spiritual gifts into two broad categories. Those gifts which involve speaking, and those gifts which involve serving. And these two categories do also correspond to the two offices of the church, don't they? In the church, there are to be elders And there are to be deacons serving as officers of the church. The elders are to give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer and to the shepherding of the congregation. Uh, The deacons are to give themselves to to service. Uh, There is much that can be said about verses 6 through 8, but I would prefer to focus only upon the clear and main principle uh, that whatever our gift may be, we are to use it for the building up of Christ's church. Uh, Church is not something that we attend, you understand. But it is something that we are a part of. We are members of Christ's body. And as members, we all do have a service to perform, a function to fulfill. Let us love one another, is the Apostle's plea. Most of you are looking at me right now thinking, we know this. And I know that you know this. Most of you do. You've heard this before. But what am I doing right now except standing before you saying, 
let us be spurred on by the word of God to not grow slack in this area as a church, but to have zeal and to have a passion indeed for loving one another as Christ has commanded us in his word. I want to look briefly at verses 9 through 21, where the apostle delivers a whole series of exhortations to the Christian, urging us to maintain a proper attitude or heart towards one another in the church. When I read this a few weeks back, I think it was a part of our Bible reading plan, and I came across it. I just read it. There's, just whole, there, there, there's this whole string of commands, uh, these exhortations that, that Paul delivers to the church. I thought, we need to hear this. There's so much power, and I'm going to roll through them so quickly right now um, for the sake of time. But I would encourage you, after this sermon is over and after you go home on, the, on this Lord's Day, to revisit this text and just to look at each little exhortation carefully and and think to yourself if this were happening in our congregation how blessed we will be i think that it is happening in large part i am not being critical here of you as a church don't don't misunderstand me but lord make it to happen and, and may it continue to happen always that we would love one another so sincerely in this way this section i think is a little bit difficult to preach because it lacks the structure and development that is typical of paul Uh, The exhortations are delivered in such rapid-fire succession, and I think there is an intensity to the passage, in my opinion. You you can almost hear the appeal of the apostle's voice as if he were pleading, saying, please, brothers and sisters, love one another in this way, and there he goes off to give us these exhortations. In verse 9, Paul says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Our love for one another must be sincere and without pretense or show. It is very easy to love in a pretend way, isn't it? People pretend to love all the time. It is easy to talk as if we love, and many do that. And, but truly love, uh, to truly love, that is to love from the heart and to lay your down, life down for the good of another, is very difficult. The Christian's love is to be sincere. Paul identifies love as the leading vir- virtue, just as he does elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 13, if we... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, Paul says there. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Our love for one another must be genuine, he is saying. And then he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Leon Morris notes that true love involves deep hatred for all that is evil. For evil can never benefit the beloved. Did you hear that? To truly love someone is to have within you a deep hatred for that which is evil. Because what does evil do except work to the detriment of ourselves and others? You cannot love someone by approving of or celebrating their sin. For then you would be rooting for their destruction. You might appear to love the sinner as you validate their behavior, but truly you are hating them. To love others truly, one must first love God and the things of God. We must hate with a holy hatred what is evil and stick like glue to what is good. That is what the apostle is here urging us to do. Verse 10, we are to love one another with brotherly affection. The bond that Christians enjoy is a familial bond. We have been adopted as sons of God in Christ Jesus. We are brothers and sisters united together in Christ with God as Father. This bond will last for all eternity. And so we are to have affection for one another, and our affection should 
be great. We are to have brotherly affection. This love is, is more than an emotion, but it does manifest itself when we outdo one another in showing honor, the text says. Verse 11, never should we be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We should be eager to do things for one another when legitimate needs do arise. Verse 12, we are to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. When you belong to a local church where the members do know and love one another sincerely, you will see your brothers and sisters from time to time go through very difficult circumstances. Isn't that true? When you belong to a local church where people actually know one another, uh, you'll see that people do suffer, people do struggle, and you will be very close to that suffering and to that struggle. And how important it is to love those who are suffering by reminding them of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, this must be done with great care, especially when people are in times of, of difficulty. But it is important for the one who is suffering to be encouraged to look to Jesus for comfort, to remember our salvation in Him, and to lay up treasures in the world to come. Paul speaks often about the power of hope in, in, in Christ and in his writings. But it is Peter who says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what is Peter saying here? Uh, Hope in Christ as we sojourn in this world, even if for a time you are being grieved, maybe even severely, by various trials. Look to Christ, look to the world to come, and place your hope there. Indeed, we have to do that with one another in Christ's church, to where we point one another to Christ and urge one another to hope in Him. Christians are to be patient in tribulation, the text says. Uh, The word patience here means to bear up under difficult circumstances, to endure through suffering. That is the idea. And we are also to be constant in prayer. And so I ask this question, are you enduring with one another in the midst of difficulty? Do you labor in prayer for one another, especially when people are suffering? Uh, Are we faithful in this way? Would this be true of our fellowship so that we would be found walking with one another in this world and truly uh, laboring with one another and praying for one another as we sojourn in this place? Verse 13, we are to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so see that our love must be demonstrated very practically. Uh, we, We must contribute to needs. And what is hospitality except inviting people even into your own home to care for them? Hospitality would have been very important in Paul's day where people, when they journeyed, did not have the luxuries of automobiles and hotels and the rest. Uh, it was important that Christians be received into Christians' home and, and, and taken in there. Uh, one of the things I enjoyed most about our time in Arizona a couple of weeks ago was the hospitality that was shown to us uh, by the pastor of the church there and his wife. It was a very uh, wonderful thing and inspiring, to be quite honest. And I do hope that we, as a congregation, learn to show hospitality to one another, uh, that we find ourselves in each other's homes, uh, eating a meal together and having 
a wonderful, wonderful fellowship, how important it is to do this, especially when there are needs within the church. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them, Paul says. It is not that Paul expects that Christians will persecute Christians. To me, when I first read verse 14, it seemed a little out of place. Right? Here we are being exhorted to live with one another in a particular way in the context of a local church. But then all of a sudden, this command, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. What is this, Paul? Do you expect for persecution to take place within Christ's church, one Christian against the other? Uh, No, instead, uh, Paul does know that persecution comes from outside the local church and in upon it. But I think Paul is concerned for Christians that they keep their heart free from all bitterness, even towards their persecutors. And how does that apply to the relationships within a local church? Well, bitterness within the heart, even if it is directed towards those outside the church, will certainly be a cancer to the church itself. Do you see how this could be? A heart that is consumed with bitterness cannot love. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do do you understand how this could be? So here you are being wronged by some non-Christian person outside the church, but you're so consumed with it. You're so filled with anger. You're so filled with bitterness and, and desirous of revenge that here you are unable now to love even your brother or sister in Christ, Paul says, no, keep your heart. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. How important it is to empathize with those who are suffering and to celebrate with those who are experiencing success. Uh, Chrysostom recognized this. He was an early church father. And I want you to listen to his words. He recognized that it requires more of a high Christian temper to rejoice with them that do rejoice than to weep with those who weep. There is none so hard-hearted as not to weep over him that is in calamity. The other requires a very noble soul so as not only to keep that from envying, but even to feel pleasure with the person who is in esteem. Do you understand what he is saying here? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Chrysostom is saying, actually, it's a lot easier to weep with those who weep. Most people have enough tenderness in their heart to come alongside those who are in a a time of of difficulty and and to put their arm around them and to weep with them and to pray with them. Some do not even have that. I might take exception with Chrysostom's quote here uh, at that point. I think some are so hard-hearted not even to be able to do that. But he's saying it's actually more difficult to come along someone who is celebrating, who, who is experiencing some success, and to rejoice with that one. Why? Uh, because we tend to envy uh, those who are experiencing success, to where we look at them and they say, oh, you, you, you were able to purchase a new and, and larger home, were you? You know, but inside, what are we thinking to ourselves? You know, there, there's envy there. No, instead, the scriptures are commanding us, come alongside those who are rejoicing and rejoice with them. And also, come alongside those who are in sorrow and weep with them. Verse 16 says that Christians are to live in harmony with one another. Never should we be haughty, in, but we should associate with the lowly. Never should we be wise in our own sight, 
Um, Some think too highly of themselves and are unwilling to associate with lowly or hurting people or to engage in lowly activities. Uh, Thankfully, this was not the attitude of our Lord, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Philippians 2, 6 through 7. And so, brothers and sisters, we are to have this mind amongst ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 5. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that Christians do sometimes offend other Christians. This does happen. We offend one another. We do struggle with sin. Uh, Sometimes there are misunderstandings. Sometimes there are legitimate offenses that are done. Uh, Certainly, non-Christians do sometimes do evil to Christians also. But never should we do evil in return, but instead we are to do What is honorable? Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. I do appreciate that Paul does say, if possible. Don't you appreciate that? Uh, For there are some situations where doing what is right will lead to conflict, and it cannot be avoided. Uh, Paul knew this very well. Read the book of Acts. Uh, He was a man who knew conflict. He was constantly offending other people, but it was offense at the gospel, and not offense at Paul unnecessarily so. Our Lord also knew this well. Many hated him, but it was because he was light and they were darkness. And so, true as this may be, we are to do everything in our power to live at peace with others. Never should we unnecessarily offend. In the church, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 19 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so as it is with bitterness, which was addressed earlier in the heart, so it is with a vengeful heart. The Christian should have nothing to do with either things. We should not have bitterness towards our enemy, but we should even bless those who persecute us. And also, we should not have a vengeful spirit, a spirit that says, I will get even with them myself. Um, In my relatively short time in the ministry, I've come to see that Christians are sometimes wronged very badly by others. And I've also seen that the desire for vengeance can be a very strong desire. There's nothing at all wrong with wanting justice to be served. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Or for wanting things to be set right. I I think that is a natural thing to want and even a godly thing to want in some ways. We do long for the Lord's return in part so that he might set everything right or straight. Uh, But this is God's work and not ours. That's the point that the apostle is making. This vengeance thing, uh, this justice thing is God's work and not ours, individually speaking. The Lord does also use governments to execute justice, but that's another subject. It's not our task. It's not something that we should touch as individual Christians. And so what are we to do then? We are to leave it to God. Never should we take revenge ourselves, and neither should we have vengeful hearts. This too will be a cancer to the Christian and to the church if here we have a vengeful spirit 
within us concerning those who have done wrong to us. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so with hearts free from all bitterness and wrath, we are to do good even to our enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Christ says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So in this age, even God is found blessing and doing good to those who are wicked. The sun rises on them just as it does on you, and the, sun, the rains fall on them just as it does on, on you. And so we are to be like our Father in this regard, even loving our enemies. And so this is how evil is to be overcome in this world. It's to be overcome with good. And by responding to our enemy in this way, the Apostle says, you will heap burning coals on his head. Isn't that an interesting expression and an interesting image, uh, there, there is some debate as to what exactly it means. Uh, some have thought that, well, what it means is this, that this is how you'll really get even with the person, by doing good to them. But that seems to be a complete contradiction of what Paul has just said. He's seeking to free us from a vengeful spirit, so then why would he stir us up to get even with them by doing good to, to them? I don't think that is correct. I believe that Calvin's interpretation of this phrase is the correct one. He understands the heaping of burning coals on the head of our enemy to mean that when we respond to the evil that our enemy does with good and with kindness, his mind shall be turned to one side or another. For doubtless our enemy shall either be softened by our benefits, or if he is to be so savage that nothing can tame him, he shall yet be burnt and tormented by the testimony of his own conscience on finding himself overwhelmed with our kindness. I think that is the idea here, that we are to do good in response to evil, and it's certainly going to get the enemy's attention, won't it? It might wake him up from his evil state, and it might be a means by which he comes to salvation, or indeed, he might be tormented by our kindness, but our heart in it is to be pure. We are not to have a vengeful spirit within us, but we are to do good, praying for the good even of our enemies. And so clearly there are some exhortations in this string of exhortations that have a Christian's attitude towards non-Christians in view. Uh, bless those who persecute you is one example. If your enemy is hungry, feed him is another. Uh, but I want you to notice and to see, brothers and sisters, that the apostle's aim is to urge the Christian to maintain a heart of love so that we might love one another in Christ's church sincerely. That is his objective. It is our attitude towards one another that Paul is most concerned with. Our love for one another must be genuine, sincere, without pretense. And if we are to love one another in this way, our hearts must be kept pure. For if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false against the truth, Paul, or James says in James 3. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic even, he says. If these things are in your heart, they're not from above, but they're even demonic, he says. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so how important it is for us to keep our hearts pure with the love of God so that we might love one another 
sincerely and from the heart, not just for a short period of time, but for a long time as we walk together in this world. By way of conclusion, I'll say just a few things. Uh, Notice in our short little dip into the book of Romans here, uh, which I've enjoyed, uh, that doctrine does matter. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans uh, lay forth doctrine for us uh, in such a beautiful way. Doctrine does matter, but it's not all that matters. Paul's concern as an apostle is that we would have right doctrine, which would then lead to right practice. If we truly understand biblical doctrine, then it should produce obedience within us. First of all, it should move us to love and worship God supremely and with all that we are, not in an effort to try to earn our salvation, but out of gratitude for all that God has done for us. It's only reasonable now, given all that Christ has done for us, that we offer ourselves up as living sacrifices to God. And also, it should move us to to love one another. Think of the cross of Christ, brothers and sisters. The cross of Christ is what gives us the ability to do this. There we saw demonstrated in the death of Christ the tremendous love and grace and mercy of God. How could we not then respond to that love uh, to extend it also to one another in Christ's church? Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these words given to us here. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would, uh, on the one hand, uh, be very zealous to deepen their relationship with you, God, through Christ Jesus and by the Spirit. May that uh, vertical relationship be healthy. May it be deep and true. Uh, May the faith be sincere and may it be ever-growing. But Lord, also I do pray for us as your church, as your people, that we would never grow slack as it pertains to our love for one another. Lord, help us to love one another sincerely. Lord, help us to extend grace to one another. Keep our hearts pure from all bitterness. Keep us free from a vengeful spirit. Lord, do produce within us your love so that we might pour it out upon one another always. God, we do thank you for your church. What a gift it is to have faith in Christ, but then to be invited to walk in a family such as this one here. Lord, deepen our appreciation for your church and also grow us together in Christ Jesus, all to the glory, honor, and praise of your name. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people say, amen.